0: According to a recent uh, Gallup poll, the alarming trend of not taking the Bible seriously in our country is increasing. In the mid-1970s on into the 80s, the Gallup poll said uh, about 40% of Americans viewed the Bible as the Word of God. Uh, that you could take it literally as the Word of God. But there's been a steady decline since then. In fact, it's been a rapid decline, apparently, according to Gallup, in the last three years particularly. And as the shrinking percentage of of, uh, Americans that call themselves even Christian continues, there's that growing concern of how people view the Scriptures. So that today... Gallup says there's um, something like 23, 24% of Americans that will respect the Bible, say it is the Word of God, that you can take it literally. Which is why we're doing this Thrive thing, because the trend is alarming in our country, no doubt about it. The Thrive emphasis these weeks has been on the veracity, the certainty, the authority, the sufficiency of God's Word. John Morrison preached two messages a couple of weeks ago on the authority of God's Word, the sufficiency of God's Word. And I would encourage you to go back to the website if you didn't catch those to listen to them. What about the trustworthiness of God's Word? Didn't it just kind of come together, a human book that a couple of guys, a few men wrote, and then some some hooded, robed divines got together? and said, I think that one, yeah, let's put that one in there. Let's, let's put that in that. Let's, let's kind of wrap it up and bind it and call it the Bible. Well, last week, Dennis McNutt shared that important topic of the canonicity of the Bible. How did this book actually come into, into play? And again, I would encourage you... Dennis shared a lot of stuff, kind of like a, a fire hose approach, and go back and, and listen to that on, uh, on our website, the canonicity. But today I want to continue that theme of the trustworthiness of God's Word. One of the reasons it seems that there's this growing mistrust of the Bible is it's this idea, and it's been around for decades, but it's this kind of a growing idea, is that the Bible just a, just a bunch of letters and copies, and we, we don't have the originals anyway, and weren't there a lot of mistakes? You know, when you, if we were to play the telephone game here today, you know, we were to start there, and Daniel, would start with you, and I would whisper in your ear, Mark Carey is a handsome man, <laughs> and by the time I got back there to John Morrison, well, well he'd be out of here anyway. He would, he, he would hear, Mark Carey is an idiot. Um, that's kind of the telephone game. Well, didn't that happen with the Bible? You know, you started writing stuff down, and then it got transferred and copied, and, and then it got copied and copied and, and copied, and, you know, it's just full of mistakes, isn't it? I mean, the question is, is what they wrote then what, what we're reading now? A number of years ago, Daniel Brown wrote that interesting novel, The Da Vinci Code, one of the characters in the Da Vinci Code, Sir Lee Teabing, uh, made this comment. The Bible did not arrive by facts from heaven. The Bible is a product of, of man, my dear, not of God. The Bible did not fall magically from the clouds. Man created it as a historical record of tumultuous times, and it has evolved through countless translations, additions, and revisions. History has never had a definitive version of the Bible, so said fictional character Sir Lee Tebing. Bart Ehrman is a scholar, grew up in an evangelical home, went to Moody Bible College, Wheaton College, got his uh, doctorate in textual uh, criticism of the Bible, and then as he studied the Bible and saw the different manuscripts and saw all the mistakes, all the variants he lost his faith, and in his book, Misquoting Jesus, he says, none of the copies is completely accurate, since the scribes who produced them inadvertently and or intentionally changed them in places. And so rather than actually having the inspired words of the autographs of the Bible, what we have are the air-ridden copies of the autographs of the original writings. Later he said this, not only do we not have the originals, we don't have the first copies of the originals. We don't even have copies of the copies of the originals or copies of the copies of the copies of the originals. So wrote Bart Erdman, scholar of biblical manuscripts, who studied under famous people at Princeton. Um, what's going on here? You know, Houston, we got a problem. And it seems like there could be a problem because indeed we don't have the original writings. You, you can read the little side part of the program in bulletin this morning about our constitution. You can go to the National Archives, and you can see one of the original copies. Of the Constitution, but we don't have that with the, with the Scriptures. You can't go someplace and see the original writing of the Apostle Paul or of Peter. We don't have the original autographs. Not only that, we do have a lot of copies. It was copied and copied and copied again. We have lots of copies. And thirdly, if you compare those copies, we'd have to say honestly, hmm, yep, there are a lot of differences. There are some variants that we have to deal with. And so the question again is, can we be certain that what they wrote then we have now? The answer is, absolutely we can. Because there's some facts we need to be reminded of. Facts like the thousands of manuscript copies that we do have. 5,800 or more copies, handwritten manuscripts of the Greek text of the New Testament. Latin manuscripts, 10,000 plus copies. We have manuscripts of the New Testament in other languages, maybe five to 10,000 of those manuscripts. And then you add to that the, the early church fathers in the second and third centuries as they would quote the Scriptures We've got, some estimate, over a million quotes of the Bible from those church fathers, quoting it as Scripture. In other words, today we have something like close to 25,000 handwritten manuscripts of the New Testament in various languages, including the original Greek. There is a lot to study out there. There's a lot to compare. Now, when you look at these manuscripts, by the way, I'll just give you a quick tutorial on that. Um, Paul, Peter, oftentimes they would write on a on a on a scroll. It's a papyrus scroll from the papyrus plant, and uh, they would write uh, the scriptures and 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 they would unroll the scroll and keep writing, and then they would send the scroll off, and people would unroll the scroll to begin with, and the first. As you started that scroll, you would see Paul, an apostle of Jesus he'd start with who it was, and then he would unroll the scroll. Other of these manuscripts are um, uh, written on papyruses, but they were put into kind of like a book form. It's called a codex. So the papyrus plant dried, written on, and then formed and tied together in a book form, in a codex. Now, some of these manuscripts were written on animal skin or parchment and some were very nicely done parchment called vellum parchments and they were formed into books it's a codex and of course then it was the 15th century that the uh, Gutenberg discovered the or d- invented the printing press and so all things changed at that point by the way how many of you've been to the bible museum here uh, yeah a lot of you if you haven't <clears throat> been there yet Um, I would encourage you to go. There's actually a reproduction of a a Gutenberg press there, and and plus many many other examples of of scriptures. A wonderful place to go, the Bible Museum. Uh, These manuscripts look something like like this. This is a manuscript called P52, the John Rylands fragment. It's a 2-inch by 3-inch papyrus. It dates somewhere around 117 to 138 A.D. It's a portion of John's Gospel here. Or here's a copy of a codex, a book form, the Codex Sinaiticus. It's the oldest complete copy of the 27 books of the New Testament. It dates to around 350 A.D. Or here's another fragment or or papyrus um, codex, a part of one, P. 75. It dates somewhere 175 to 225 A.D. It's about the size of the Bibles we carry today, 10 inches by 5 inches. Um, this codex contains, it's, it's the oldest complete version of the Gospel of Luke and parts of, of John. Here is the, the Chester Beatty papyrus, and you can kind of see how the plants, the fibers of the plants, of uh, the papyrus plant, and they would write on this. This dates back to about 250 A.D. Well, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of these things. Now, another I think interesting fact related to these manuscripts is that not only do they come in various forms, a scroll, a codex, a, a various forms, a papyrus or, 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 or a parchment, but they came from different regions of the Roman Empire, different groups of families, four to be more precise, four different regions or families produced these manuscripts. Uh, towards uh, in the west. Uh, Italy, there was the Western family, Western texts. And down in North Africa, the Alexandrian and the Palestinian area, the Caesarean texts. Uh, up north in Asia Minor, the Byzantine texts. In fact, the majority of those 5,800 Greek manuscripts come, manuscripts come from that region, the Byzantine texts. So there's different families of texts. Now, again, because all these manuscripts from these different regions were were copied, yes, there were copy mistakes. There were copy errors. We have to accept that and admit it. These little errors, these little differences, are called variants. Variants. And textual critics like Dr. Daniel Wallace describes a variant as any place among the manuscripts in which there is a variation in wording, Including word order, an omission or an addition of words, or even spelling differences. It could be words that are uh, repeated. Have you ever uh, written something down and you repeated the word "the" or or something? It could be um, synonyms that are used. As a as a copyist, um, maybe. Thought another term would be better, a synonym that was used, or, or sometimes there was just a word was omitted. Have you ever done that? You, you're writing something down, copying something, and then you realize you, you, you missed a word. If you go back and proofread, then you see, oh, I didn't include that word. Well, hang on to your seats because you know how many variants there are in all these manuscripts that have been found? Scholars say close to 400,000 of these variants in the manuscripts. Yeah, Bart Ehrman saw these things and began to say, uh mm -mm, I cannot trust the Bible. Now we won't take the time to count the words, say, in the New Testament. Trust me on this, there's about 140,000 words in the New Testament. 400,000 variants. That means there's about two or three variants for every word that was written in the New Testament. Um, let me give an example of what that might look like. Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7 says, but we prove to be gentle among you. That's just a portion of the verse. We prove to be gentle among you. Um, now, that word gentle... Um, there's two different words in some of these manuscripts that show up. There's a Greek word epios, um, that means gentle. But some of these manuscripts that have been dug up and found has the word "nepias," which is the Greek word for infant. Epios, nepios. Um, what happened here? It's a variant. Well, interestingly, the word, the Greek word that just precedes this word, epios, that preceding word ends with the letter N. And in the Greek languages they wrote, there was not word breaks. It just was words that uh, uh, all kind of run together, the, the um the characters of the letters all ran together. And so here was a word that ended with N and then the word epios began and, and then when the words began to be broken up, the N got over to the epios and so you had a variant. Is it epios or is it nepios? The question is, does it impact the meaning of the verse? We prove to be gentle among you. We proved to be like an infant among you. No, it doesn't. In fact, this is something very important to understand yes there are 400,000 variants are they significant again a Greek scholar Daniel Wallace scholar of textual criticism and many 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 others will tell you that 99.75% of the variants are meaningless and can be easily explained Little copy errors. The word the repeated. A letter missing here. Almost, or you could say less than 1% of the variations of the differences of these thousands of manuscripts impact meaning in some degree. Very, very minute. William Lane Craig, a great apologist thinker, in his book, Reasonable Faith, says this. Scholars of almost every theological stripe attest to the the profound care with which the New Testament books were copied in the Greek language and later transmitted and preserved in Syriac and Coptic and Latin and in a variety of other ancient European and Middle Eastern languages. Is what was written then what we have now. There are thousands and thousands of these ancient manuscripts of the Bible that when you compare them all and bring them all together, you find, yeah, there are little differences, little, but they are so minor, so minute. The impact is zero. Zero in terms of understanding the Scriptures. You see, when, when those ancient writers, Paul and James and Peter, when they were moved upon by, by the Holy Spirit, it says, in Peter, superintended by the Holy Spirit, and they picked up that, that quill and they wrote it on that scroll, the papyrus scroll, or they wrote down the words on that parchment, They were being moved upon by the Spirit of God. God wrote His Word using the instrumentality of a human being. And they wrote down those words on that parchment, on that scroll. And it was the inspired Word of God. God was writing to us His inerrant Word without error because He's God. And God is without error. And when he wrote his word through the instrumentality of a, of a human being, and they wrote this down, it was the inspired and errant Word of God. In the original autographs, which we don't have, does that make a difference? And now, of course it does. If the original autographs were full of errors, why are we even talking about this today? Who cares? But if we can assess and understand that we have copies of copies of copies and compare them all, thousands upon thousands, to find less than 1% variations, you can have complete assurance that what they wrote back then is what we have now, the inspired and inerrant Word of God. Now, how does that compare with other um, ancient writings? You know, like Caesar's Gallic Wars or the writings of Plato or uh, uh, books and authors that uh, are are never questioned today by scholars. How does the manuscripts of the Bible compare to other ancient writings? Well, Josh McDowell, uh, you've heard of him, I'm sure, Uh, has written a book many years ago and updated it, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Uh, Let's have him explain a little bit about
1: what's involved in that. The bibliographical test of any document, we're applying it to the New Testament. And the question is, how many manuscripts do you have? The more manuscripts you have, the easier it is to reconstruct the original. For example, if you have 20 manuscripts, and in those manuscripts you have the Gospel of John, but in John 3:16 there's three different renderings in those manuscripts. Some translate for God so loved the world, some say God thought a lot about the world, and some say God thought the world was cool. How do you know what's in the original? You can't. It's impossible. However, if you have 4 or 500 manuscripts, then ah oh, It is so much easier to use those manuscripts to recreate the original to a high percentage of a pure text. Again, let me compare the number of manuscripts with other literature of antiquity. For example, Caesar and the Gallic Wars, there's only 10 manuscripts that survive. Of Plato, there's only 7 manuscripts. Many people consider the Roman historian Tacitus the, the number one Roman historian, and yet there's only 20 manuscripts that remain of his annals. Of Pliny the Younger, seven manuscripts survive. Of Thucydides, eight manuscripts. Suetonius, eight manuscripts. Of the Greek historian Herodotus, there's only eight manuscripts that survive. Everything else is lost. Sophocles, there's 193. Of Lucretius, there is two. Of Euripides, nine manuscripts. Of Demophanes, there's about 200 manuscripts. Now, Aristophanes, there's only 10, maybe 12 at the most. and Aristotle, only 49 manuscripts. Do you know what there is of the New Testament? Just of the New Testament, I've been able to document 24,633 manuscripts of just the New Testament. I never knew that until I set out to write evidence that demands a verdict against it and found out that I was wrong. I was dumb. The only problem is others were dumber. They made a movie out of that. Dumb and dumber. But in that whole process, I concluded there's absolutely no comparison in numbers between the New Testament and any other book in all of history.
0: You see, there is no comparison between our Bible and other ancient documents. God has preserved His Word in thousands upon thousands of manuscript copies that we can compare and we can understand and see, um, some as early as the 2nd and 3rd centuries. Um, let me mention something, by the way, regarding, and this could be another whole topic, but we won't, we won't be bored with this, but um, uh, we have different translations, don't we? I use here the New American Standard version because I've been using it since college days. How many of you use a, uh, uh, an NASB, a New American Standard version? Okay. There you go. Uh, how many of you use a King James Bible or New King James? Alright, good. How about an NIV, an NIV Bible? Okay, hands go. Up. How about an English Standard ESV? Inevitably, this happens. I've done this little survey over the years. It kind of breaks down a fourth, and a fourth, and a fourth, and a fourth. Different translations, right? And uh, you know, I might be reading here from the New American Standard, and you're saying, "That's not what my Bible says." How do we get these different translations? Can we trust them? Again, that's a whole another study by itself. But let me just say real quickly. Some of these differences that we have in our translations are due to the fact that translation committees, people got together and they looked at these original ancient manuscripts and they said, we're trying to figure this out, make a good English translation and we think this English word would would translate this Greek word the best or this English phrase would translate this Greek phrase the best. And so, depending on the translation committees and their preferences, they would take those manuscripts and put English words in that they thought was best. So we have different translations because of the preferences of the translation committees. Some of them are due to the fact that maybe this translation committee uh, was using this set of manuscripts that had a few of these variants. And so it has a, a few changes that way. Uh, I mentioned earlier the regions, the families of texts, the four different regions that these manuscripts are found. Uh, the, the vast majority of the manuscripts come from that Asia Minor, that place, it's called the Byzantine text. That's, that is the text family that the King James Version is based on. They're more recent, uh, 1,100, um, no New American Standard, some other translation are based on more of the, the Western texts. there's not as many of them, by far fewer, they're older, And so there's a little different uh, approach to to how to use this. But we're talking about, what, less than 1% in the variations? Yeah, there's some differences, but when you hold that Bible in your hand, you don't need to know Hebrew or Greek. You can rest assured that a translation that you're using, by the way, you know what Jesus used? A translation. You can rest assured that What they wrote then, we indeed have now. Um, Here's the bottom line. We truly can trust the Bible. We can truly trust the Bible because what they wrote then is what we have now. Jesus put a high premium on the fact that the Word of God was going to be transmitted faithfully throughout the centuries. Because just before he was crucified, he went to his knees in prayer to the Father. And he prayed, Father, sanctify them in truth. Your Word is truth. Sanctify them, set them apart as holy, Father. Because your Word is truth. And that prayer is still being answered this very day. The Word is truth. God has sovereignly preserved it. This has been transmitted over the centuries of time. We have scholars that can take these manuscripts and compare them. We have the absolute assurance that Jesus' prayer is being answered today. That when you come to the Bible... And you come in faith, and you come humble-hearted. You come into His presence. and say, "Oh Lord, teach me Your ways. I don't want to be conformed to the world's way of thinking. I want to be transformed by the renewing of my mind. And my mind is going to be renewed by the living and abiding, the precious Word of God. And so, Father, sanctify me in truth. Change my life. I don't want to be the person I was yesterday. I want... I want I want your character to be formed in me. I want to live for your glory as a child of God. the, The power of the Word of God is as real, is as powerful today as it ever has been. Because this is the living, abiding Word of God. You can trust it. God has graciously preserved His truth in a book. And so we come to that book And it's in this book that we read about how we can have a life of love and and joy and peace. It's here. It's in this book. It's a book that we can go to and find out how how to have abundance in in our married life or in our singleness. It's found here in the book. Want to know how to raise children? Want to know how to to love your elderly parents? Right right here. This, this, This word of truth. You want to know how to live as a, as a citizen of heaven? Well, while we live here in this country, this is the book to go to. You want to know how to love the unlovely? You want to know how to be patient when you've been wronged? Right here, this book teaches us. You want to know how to encourage the fainthearted? You want to know how to admonish a sinner? You want to know how to suffer well? and the pains of life? Do you want to know how to to live well in prosperity? This book teaches us. Because Jesus prayed it. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. This book teaches us how to live. But more than that, this book, it teaches us about God. It's the self-revelatory love letter from God to us. It's in this book that we find out that God is the, the, the majestic, powerful creator of all, the sovereign Lord, the transcendent God of all. This book tells us about that God. This is a book that we go to to find a God who is very present, very real. He's, he's imminent. He walks with us. He talks with us. Even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, He's there. This book tells us that. We don't have to guess. We're not in, the, in a fog It's a self-revelatory gift to us. This book tells us that God has a divine plan for the ages. He's not up in heaven biting his fingernails wondering what's going to happen next. This book tells us that God has a divine plan, and he's unfolding it right on time. This book tells us about his love and grace and mercy that sent his son to die for us. This book tells us that God so loved us, he gave his son that Jesus took our sin upon Himself and He died in our place on the cross, that there is a God in heaven who is holy and righteous and will not tolerate sin. This book tells us about that God. It tells us about His love that sent a Redeemer to take our sin and die in our place, to rise again and offer the free gift of eternal life. That God is revealed in this book that he moved upon men, holy men of God, to write it down. This book tells us of the glorious return of Jesus one day. That there's a consummation to this world. And that he's going to return and set up his kingdom on earth. He's going to right all wrongs and righteousness and peace and justice. It'll reign on this world. Where do we find that? This book tells us that. It's here. Jean Edward Veef. Put it this way that God reveals Himself in a book may seem too simple, too too unspiritual, not mystical enough. One might excuse someone for thinking it too good to be true, but it is true. The God who became man has revealed Himself in human language, and His word, recorded in a book, is the power of salvation. Folks, are you hungry for that book? Are you thriving by opening up the Scriptures and letting the Spirit of God, the author of this book, transform us? Are you living obediently from what you find in this book? This is the Word of God. And all of it, every bit of it, is absolutely, completely true. And God's people said, Amen. Father, thank you so much that you love this enough to convey your heart in human language, to be written down in a book that can be translated throughout the ages and languages and and various peoples and cultures and countries can can handle and, and, and taste and see that you, the Lord, you're good because your word conveys it. Thank you, Father, that we can spiritually thrive because you have loved us so much to reveal yourself in a book. May we respect it and honor it and show that respect and honor how we handle it, read it, study it, apply it, obey it. All for your glory, to honor you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.